Well, thank you for joining me today on Financially Speaking. My name is Mitch Slater. I'm a Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor with UBS Wealth Management in Westfield, New Jersey. We're along with my partners, Ann and Crystal. We do our best to bring you advice beyond investing and address our clients' most challenging financial needs. It's my sincere hope that each and every episode of this podcast will educate you on personal finance and real-life business issues of the day. So let's jump right in. Food is life. Producing it has reshaped our planet. Today, whole economies and even national security depend on it. Will we one day grow meat in labs and salads and skyscrapers? By 2050, there will be likely 9 billion mouths to feed, and our planet is already under stress. Agriculture is a leading threat to rivers, lakes, and coastal environments, and up to 40% of all croplands worldwide is experiencing soil erosion. And as our climate changes, so will the ways we grow our food. A lasting solution will require a substantial rethink about how we, as a society, live and grow our food. If I haven't depressed you enough already, consider that an estimated 820 million people are still undernourished today, while almost 2 billion adults are overweight or obese, creating obvious health problems governments and citizens can ill afford. Okay, now the good news. The food revolution has begun, and it's powered by all the new technologies of our time. It may just be the beginning, but it's hard to not get excited about the change and disruption ahead. So today on Financially Speaking, we're going to take a healthy bite out of the future of food and the challenges we face with Michelle LaLiberty, a thematic investing associate with UBS, who's been knee-deep in food, glorious food, to feed our hungry hearts with challenges, drivers of change, and solutions. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Good afternoon. Our pleasure. So I'm counting on you today to cheer everyone up. Um, You don't have to tell any jokes, but I, I, I promise... You know, if you can give us a little bit of hope, but let's start with some of the challenges. Yeah, sure. We'll start with the bad news first, right? The agriculture industry is facing a couple broad-based and ongoing challenges. For one, there's the the demographic challenge of population growth and a need to feed more people. So estimates actually indicate that every single day we need to feed an additional 200,000 people. So even in areas of the world where food shortages aren't prevalent, calorie demand per person is still increasing. Um, And then on top of that, we're seeing more and more people move to cities. So this growing trend of urbanization is decreasing the amount of land that we have to farm. So we don't just need to feed more people, we need to do it with even less space. And it's not really the whole story either. More food comes with more demand for water, higher greenhouse gas emissions, other externalities that come from the production process. So it's really a number of different factors kind of all coming together here at once. So technology is in every aspect of our lives and more inside of our bodies. So how are the new technologies being used in the agricultural space combating some of these challenges? Yeah, so we've seen the industry adapt um, and innovate in a lot of different ways. And most use technology in one way or another to increase their yields. So we think there's already a revolution underway in precision agriculture. And what I mean by that term is the use of big data and artificial intelligence to improve predictive techniques and to reduce inefficiencies. So AI, for example, can be used for better weather forecasting, applying the exactly right amount of fertilizer at the right rate and the right time, or using image recognition to identify disease or pests that can ruin an entire harvest very quickly. 
I'd also point to drones as another important use of tech in the space. They can create 3D maps for soil analysis. They can help farmers manage irrigation and nitrogen levels. And then really, if we think about some of the challenges you know, I just described, besides just feeding more people, you know, I mentioned how we have less space. So if you think about new techniques like vertical farming and urban agriculture, these could be used to maximize the space that we have. So vertical farming uses controlled environment agriculture, or CEA for short, technology to create the conditions for growing indoors. So from stacking produce floor to ceiling, rather than growing in ground soil, you're saving a lot of that space that I said is getting increasingly hard to come by. And then I'd say what's essential or really core to this idea is innovation and lighting systems that are allowing us to grow inside. I'd say besides just maximizing space too, we can actually save a great deal of water by growing indoors compared to in conventional methods. So there are you know, a number of new technologies that we're seeing help us mitigate some of these challenges. Well, I'm glad you brought up the vertical farming. In a couple of weeks, we are going to have a CEO of a company called CropGrow. Her name is Sonia Lowe, and you will absolutely won't believe what they're doing in places like Massachusetts, California, and Dubai in the middle of deserts um, with vertical farming and with using lights. I saw a presentation on that a few months ago at a sustainable investing forum we had here at UBS, and I knew immediately I wanted to talk more about that. So let's Let's break down this into some of the trends you're seeing. Let's start with some of the new age consumer-led trends by the rise of plant-based meat, also known as Impossible Burgers or Beyond Meat. And science is also getting involved, though. Have we seen the defeat of meat? Well, I think that's a great question, right? And especially with all of the news around some of these new products. I would start with no, I, I don't think we're at the end of meat. Good. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that, right? There's So if you think about those drivers of the, behind these challenges that we're talking about, a growing population indicates more food. But besides that, we're also seeing rising affluence. So more and more people are entering the middle class, you know, especially in emerging markets. And that typically leads to a greater demand for land and resource-intensive food like meat. So some estimates actually predict that meat consumption could double by 2050 rather than mm. decrease. Yeah, so it's interesting to, what, what about What specific it. type of meat? Is it uh, the so traditional? Was, or? Yeah, broad-based, okay. uh, not, not plant-based, but right. animal protein. Yep. Mm -hmm. And then I would say at the same time, though, we are seeing a shift in the breakdown of the types of protein, like you mentioned, in the U.S., at least, we've seen a pretty steady rise in poultry consumption as a share of total meat consumption relative to the category of beef and veal. So that has declined. I would say it's difficult, though, to find one definitive reason as to why that is, whether it's because people want to try the new plant-based products or if it's health or cost related. So I think it can be a mixture of different things that are driving this shift in the consumer uh, rather than just one specific reason. Are you surprised at, at the, the rapid success of the, the, these Impossible Burgers and companies like Beyond Meat where major food chains are, are starting to sell their product as well as you know, have it at your typical Whole Foods and everywhere else? Right. Well, it is happening fast. I would say that that maybe surprised me in the, the rapid adoption or... Maybe the, the media hype around it is propelling some of that. I did try it once, though, and I have to say I was pretty pleasantly surprised. I grew up on a farm in a rural area, mm -hmm. and I definitely eat my fair share of red meat. So I was definitely skeptical, and I was very pleasantly surprised. I think a lot of people 
assume it's like a veggie burger. They're very different. You know, they look like meats. They taste like meat. I'm not sure I would have known the difference had someone not told me. So here's an interesting question. My wife is not a vegetarian because she eats chicken and fish, but does not eat red meat. And my son was trying to get her to order an Impossible Burger, and she ordered it, and she looked at it, and she said, I can't eat it. It looks like meat. Couldn't possibly do it because it just, she said, it kind of looks like it so much and smells like it that... So I guess they're they're yeah, doing can, something I right. Can see that, yeah. yeah. So I loved a blog recently that you wrote that had a really cute title, Give Peas a Chance. Apparently, peas play a big role here. And for the record, count me out ever with anything with peas. I haven't recovered from being force-fed peas at Camp Winnedu when I was seven years old, but that'll be another show. But what's happening with peas? Yeah, so peas are uh, a main source, at least for, and I can't speak to all of the brands, but I do know that peas is a major ingredient in the Beyond Burger. So that's really the basis for a lot of these plant-based imitation meats. Interesting. Interesting. Well, that counts me out. I, I wish everybody good luck with their Impossible Burgers. My vegan friends enjoy. As millennials and Gen X and Gen Z start to replace baby boomer relics like me, will, will food and meals have more digital solutions bringing them their meals through apps? A recent guest and a really smart e-commerce CEO, Rachel Tipograph of Micmac, told me the future generations won't even know what a grocery store experience will be like. Now, for me, I, I just find that so hard to not only believe, but wrap my head around. What kind of research are you seeing out there as far as all of these digital solutions? By that, I mean the Grubhubs and, and, and DoorDashes and companies like that as one of them. Yeah, of course. So at first, I would mention that millennials are an increasing portion of the population, right? So they are becoming a really important part of consumption trends. And one thing that we are seeing, like you mentioned, is that millennials are driving demand for food delivery through those digital channels. So apps like you said, Grubhub, Postmates, Uber Eats, some of the other ones I tend to, uh, to personally use far too much. We believe actually it's the largest segment of the total market for food innovation. Now, so, you, you said something interesting that you use it far too much. Is it because it's easy? It's because my wallet thinks I yeah, use it too okay. much. But yeah, it's because yeah. it's easy. Yeah. Yep, exactly. Yeah, well, I get, I get that. I mean, it is, it is easy. Yeah, I live in yeah. a, a five-floor walk-up in New York, so I don't yeah. have to come back up with my food and come straight to the door. <laughs> well, that's perfect. Yep. Well, that's maybe not so much. For, you might have to give a little better tips uh, for that. <laughs> so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about health and wellness. I saw a recent study showing that 80% of premature heart disease cases, strokes, diabetes, and even 40% of cancers could be avoided if unhealthy diets were eliminated. How's that working out? Yeah, so there was an estimate from the World Health Organization with those stats. I would say it's important, though, just to note that those stats include eliminating other major risk factors for non-communicable diseases. So it might be a little bit higher than just for healthy diets alone, because it would include making transitions in other parts of your life as well. But with that said, there's a large healthcare cost associated with poor diets that are high in fatty processed foods. I actually read recently that one in five adults in OECD countries are obese. So there has been an increasing focus on prevention and eating more greens, less sugar and gluten and, and all the good stuff. But I would point out that it probably depends on what you substitute with, right? So just for example here, if we say trying to be a little bit healthier and you're cutting down on red meat, but you substitute it with one of those plant-based burgers that we talked about. So you might think that sounds healthier, right? It's coming from the plant, 
and the protein content's about the same and calories are similar, but they actually tend to be a lot higher in sodium. So, you know, I'm definitely no no health expert by any means, but I would say that it's tricky to definitively say or put a, a one size fits all on eating healthier because it really does depend you know, what you substitute with. That's true. That's true. So I know this is a separate show and coming soon, we're going to have the CEO of a company called Charity Water. We're going to take a deeper dive into water specifically, but every meal has to be washed down with something and usually it's water. So with one out of 10 people worldwide living without clean water now and American cities like Flint, for example, being nightmares, what's on the horizon to help get clean water to help education, income and health, especially for women and children? Right. So, well, it is actually a pretty related topic. So 70% of fresh water consumption actually comes from irrigation. So water-saving technology is really going to be vital as we move forward here. And and you're right, it's it's a huge challenge. So more than half a billion people have no access to safe drinking water. And as a part of that, more than 43 countries are already experiencing severe water shortages. So it actually gets even more concerning when you look towards 2030. By then, about half or almost half the global population could be living in areas of, of water stress. So at first, it might not be entirely clear how this relates to education or, or to women and children. But in rural areas of the world where irrigation systems are lacking, people are spending considerable amounts of time to go out and collect water we don't think about it. We can just walk over to our sink or to our tap and you know collect water. But sub-Saharan Africa, for example, going to collect water can take half an hour or more. This is taking valuable time out of children's education. You know, students are missing classes to go and collect fresh water. Um, it's really it's a huge challenge in many parts of the world. So what can we do to combat some of this? I think on the infrastructure side, Pipe leakage and inefficient distribution methods account for a pretty large portion of water loss. So first, we can you know work to fix some of this aging infrastructure, right? Whether it be investing in dams, repairing pipe systems. In the case of certain emerging markets, probably building new systems entirely. And then just in terms of improving the infrastructure we already have, we can think about digital systems and and technologies that can enable us to understand where our water is going and how to utilize it more efficiently. So I think that would be you know, a couple steps in the right direction. Well, that's good. It's such a such a critical topic. Phil, more good news here. So I wanted to briefly touch on food waste, which is a really major economic and, and obviously environmental issue. Globally, like 30% of all food is wasted from plate to the fork to the salad, whatever, which is it represents a potentially a loss of one and a half percent of U.S. GDP. In fact, if food waste was a country, it would be the third largest emitter of greenhouse gases after the U.S. and China. I hope there's some progress going on here. Yep. Yeah. It's, uh, again, another another huge challenge. And food waste occurs all throughout the value chain, like you said, from production all the way down to the plate. Just one example to put some of this in perspective on how much food we really waste. In China alone, Enough food is wasted every year to feed up to 15 million people. And that costs us about 30 or it costs them about $30 billion. So there's a large economic cost associated with this too. I understand that a lot of that is not, because I used to think that a lot of food waste meant just the restaurants throwing out their food, but apparently it's part of the processing 
when they're processing food, there's so much that they're not going to use for whatever reason. The right. apple's bruised or, you know, something like that. Yep, there's inefficiencies all throughout all throughout the chain. And we have seen some positive signs, though. Like you said, I do, I do have some good news. Good. So there's some new technologies emerging that can potentially reduce some of this waste. And these kind of break into three main categories. And the first is just food waste prevention. So finding ways to make the food that we have last longer. So if you think about maybe something like a protective coating on things like produce or anything along those lines. Second would be redistribution. So that's things, if you think about a supermarket, right, instead of wasting food, they might give it to a local farmer for animal feed, redistributing it in its, in its purest form. And then the last group I would say is similar in that, but it attempts to actually create more value out of food. And we call that valorization. And one good example of that, I think, right, is so if you think about it, beer, you can make beer from bread. But if you use bread that would have been wasted, you're kind of getting two benefits there. So I would note those improvements. And then I would also say that governments are, are starting to take greater action, too, which you know is encouraging for us. The EU and the U.S. have started putting targets into place to reduce the amount of food waste. And France now is actually illegal for groceries to throw away edible foods. So all in all, I, th- I think there is definitely some progress being made here. Well, that's good. I know a lot's being done in New York City. I, I, I read something or was listening to a podcast recently. A large percentage of food waste is liquid. And there's actually a way to take all of that liquid and actually repurpose it and sell it as an energy drink which, you know, doesn't sound very appetizing. I don't know if they, uh, they mentioned that on the bottle, but apparently that, that's being done. While we're talking about solutions, and you mentioned a few of these, you know, there's this whole farming 4, 4.0, and you mentioned a few innovations, and like you said, you grew up in a farming area. What, what are some of the, the, the major changes that are, that are happening there? Yeah, so in food innovation, right, I already mentioned the, the rise of these plant-based burgers, but... Right. I wouldn't say it ends there. Lab-based meat is even newer. And I would say there's probably still a lot of regulatory hurdles and whatnot to get around in that space. But that's actually taking cells from an animal, a live animal, and creating actual lab-grown meat. So that's another thing we've seen pop up here. And the reason for the innovation in this space, or I would say a lot of the reason for it, is there's a, a large environmental benefit. So If you actually compare the Impossible Burger or the Beyond Burger to regular beef, there's almost 90% less greenhouse gas emissions, over 90% less land usage, and about 85 to, you know, 95 or so percent less water usage. So even if you might be a skeptic, like I definitely was, that's one reason to maybe give them a try. So I would say that This is an area that we're seeing really kind of take shape um, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And what about the, the, I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense. I mean, we've created humans out of test tubes for the last 40 years, so to speak. So I guess we should be able to create burgers. I don't know if we'll be printing them on any 3D printing machines soon, but who knows, I guess. Let's just talk a little bit also about some of the supply chain innovation. You mentioned that briefly. Is there anything more happening in that area that we should pay attention to? Um, yeah, so I would say one thing I thought was pretty interesting in particular was the use of blockchain in the agricultural space, because that was one thing that surprised me when I was reading about it. And 
I'm not talking about Bitcoin here, but the right. actual um, blockchain itself. Mm-hmm. And for simplicity, you know, think of that as a, a database, right, that holds digital records. Mm-hmm. So the blockchain can actually be used for applications like smart contracts, if you think about insurance, traceability, payments even. So ag-based insurance, if you build on blockchain, key weather incidents and payouts linked to the system can be pretty highly effective in, in reducing the time to markets, you know, which is critical for farmers that you know, need their payout to continue. Let me uh, stop you for one second, because when we hear a term sometimes, you, you and I know the terms, but there might be listeners that, that have heard that word blockchain and they just have no clue what that means. What, if you could just sort of describe what blockchain is in the most simplest you know, form. Yeah, I would I would break it down to almost like a digital ledger or like a track record, if you will, that tracks where everything is going. So one thing I was going to mention in, in agriculture is if you have things linked to the blockchain, you have a greater ability to track things like beef. Or if you think about like romaine lettuce, for example, you know, that could have been very useful when we have an outbreak or a contamination. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like you said, it's a tricky, tricky term, but it has a pretty wide variety uh, of uses. Okay. So I'm sure there are those out there saying, all right, so what, what can we do to help here? For example, does eating healthily cost more? What's a good way to get started? I know protein supply in the future is at odds with increasing disposable income. So one option, and here's a warning if for ch- little children, we're about to get a little gross here, and this might bug you, is that I read there's lots of innovation around insect protein. I know in many cultures that's not strange, but certainly in ours, it's it's kind of unthinkable still. Any uh, any thoughts there? Yeah, so I, I personally <laughs> won't be turning <laughs> to insects anytime soon. Okay, you yeah. try the Impossible Burger, but you're not ready for the cricket yeah, hot dog. I think I need some more time okay. on that All right. one. Okay. Um, <laughs> you are right, though. Yes, there is a considerable market for things like crickets and grasshoppers, um, even worms. So Ooh, I, know, I know, yeah. The cost of protein isn't necessarily the same for every region. So I think it's hard to put a direct comparison on, on different types of protein, just in terms of availability and transportation and whatnot. Though when you're looking at things like alternatives, like plant burgers, for example, they do tend to be only slightly more expensive depending where you're looking. But the amount of insects eaten really does vary by region. As you mentioned, it's almost unthinkable here, but it is actually a lot more common in the Asia-Pacific region. So it's definitely something for you know investors in the food space to, to think about. In terms of insects here over North America, I do think that some of the major setbacks to adoption outside of consumer hesitance, you know, like myself for one. But there's a lack of standardized regulation. And I think there's a lack of awareness that insects can be a viable source of protein. So I just think there's a few minor things that holding uh, holding us back over here. Yeah, and we're not, we're not quite there yet. Although I will challenge a past guest, Diane Sanfilippo, who wrote the best-selling book on paleo and keto. Diane, if you're listening, maybe it's time for uh, tasty bug recipes and put out a new cookbook there. I'm not really sure who will eat it, but somebody somewhere, I guess, is going to start. So let's talk about the kitchen of tomorrow as the end of the show. I, I imagine that we're heading towards an era of robotic sous chefs and maybe light-powered ovens that cook in a third of the time. I know it sounds very Jetson-y here, but are things happening in that world, in the kitchen world? Yeah, so I, I personally love a robotic chef. As I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, I'm really not much of a cook. And this actually reminds me of something that we wrote, we wrote a while back about 
a bar in Las Vegas called the Tipsy Robot. It's actually named after its bartender, a robot. And the robot can make up to 120 cocktails an hour. So, wow. yeah, pretty significant. It's better and, than Tom Cruise, a cocktail. <laughs> right. Yeah. And there's similar things being done for burgers, too. There's a robot in a San Francisco restaurant that was flipping about 240 burgers an hour. So there are cases of this happening, but there is a catch, right? So the robot behind the bar cost more than a million dollars. So he doesn't get tips. She doesn't really <laughs> right. need tips yeah, at that I think point. Yeah. yeah, okay. Good. Exactly. Yeah. It's probably a little too expensive for your average dive. I would say, though, there's hope. You know, there's a mass market version of this robot that costs about 100000 So there's a startup. That You're the 10th caller right now. I don't do radio <laughs> anymore. Sorry, we could give one away. Anyway. Yeah, and there is a startup that did announce an at-home version for just about $1,000. So maybe if these costs come down considerably over time, these methods might be adopted more rapidly. But... I think for the near future, robotics will probably be used more so alongside the kitchen staff, you know, helping make them more efficient or performing time-consuming tasks, but leaving the art of the craft really up to the chef. I certainly hope so. I can't imagine that. But I guess robotics can be helpful in, in, in certainly in, even in restaurants, just doing the cracking the eggs or something, something very simple like that. So obviously, folks, this is pretty important, yet it is a huge topic to undertake in one podcast, which is why we're going to have a show coming up, as I mentioned, about water. We're going to have a show on crop growth. But there's a whole entire area I'm not even talking about called nutrigenomics, which is matching your diet to DNA, something that could be the future of wellness and disease prevention. Is that anything, Michelle, that you've read anything about? I've definitely uh, heard of the topic. I mm -hmm. wouldn't say I'm apt to discuss it <laughs> more so. It's very yeah. new. It's yeah. very new. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it really is a huge topic. I think we mm -hmm. could go on forever here on you know, all of these new technologies and all of the things that we're seeing kind of take shape here pretty quickly. Like, Yeah, it'd be, it'd be pretty cool to know that, you know, if it, based on your DNA, it's okay for you to eat meat and what you should eat kale or you should have this instead of whatever it is that it's going to help you. I mean, we're going to get there eventually. I'm going to put a, a link for more information below the podcast here because there are a number of reports that UBS has put out recently. And I think it's really terrific to take a look at them and some of the reports that Michelle has done. And I want to thank you so much, Michelle, for being our tour guide through the food maze today. Day. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sure. In the meantime, folks, eat your vegetables, watch your saturated fat, stay active, show a little faith in the ingenuity of the human race. And despite some glitches, we're not that dumb. After all, we invented the salad fork. Well, that's our show this week. Thank you to Anthony Pastor and all the UBS studio staff for hosting us today. And Janelle and John over at Resonate Recording for all the post-production. And thank you, most of all, for listening, sharing, and telling people about Financially Speaking on Spotify or LinkedIn. And coming soon, hopefully, Apple Podcasts. And remember, when it comes to saving for saving the planet and everything else, this is Mitch Slater, your host, saying, pay yourself first. Have a great week. Thank you.